Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your hosts. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. And we are living in a country with a new sane president. Oh, hooray, 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 hooray. Can't say hooray enough. Yeah. So relieved and exhausted, but mostly relieved. Yeah. Um, So today's episode is about... Uh, adapted Shakespeare, adaptations of Shakespeare plays. And of all different kinds. Oh my God, there's a ton of stuff, you guys. So we're going to try not to miss anything. But if we do miss something and you know about it, please uh, shoot us an email. Yeah, buckle up because this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of information today. And no doubt we're going, we're, there's no possible way that we can cover everything because the amount of plays, musicals, operas, ballets, paintings, all of which we'll be talking about that have been based on or inspired by Shakespeare are so many, so, so many. So if we miss some, write to us. Yeah, you can send us an email at thebardcastyoudick at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you in any case. That's very true. All right, so let's get started. So the first play is Antony and Cleopatra. Oh, you should know that this was so big that Owen and I kind of split up doing the research. Uh, so I have some stuff and he has some stuff. And and we're, and we're also going to go in, cro- in, not chronological, but alphabetical order of the plays just for just to keep our, ourselves sane and organized or semi-organized. And semi-sane. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Tr- that's for sure. All right, so starting with Antony and Cleopatra, I have nothing, Owen. Yeah, there's, it's, it's funny. You would think that there would be more on Antony and Cleopatra, but the only thing that I could find uh, is a relatively recent opera by uh, Samuel Barber from 1966. It does get done. A lot of these, a lot of these operas that were, I mean, there, there's hundreds and hundreds of operas that, that were written uh, and have been written. In fact, over 200 since 1945 alone, but many of them don't get performed very often. Barbara's Antony and Cleopatra gets performed fairly often. And as far as I know, there are no others. But he's certainly a a well-known composer. So indeed, indeed. So moving on to As You Like It. So I have uh, The Ages of Man. This is a one-man show that was performed by John Gilgood, featuring a collection of speeches in Shakespeare's plays. Um, it was based on an anthology edited by Oxford professor George Rylands in 1939 that organized the speeches to show the journey of life from birth to death. So the show takes its title from Jacques in, as you like it, from his famous Ages of Man speech. Um, mm-hmm. And Gilgood was actually inspired to do this Shakespeare recital by his great aunt, famous, fabulous actress Ellen Terry, who performed her own recital titled Shakespeare's Heroines. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. He first did it. uh, He first attempted a recital during World War II when he would perform a collection of speeches he called Shakespeare in Peace and War, culminating in the once more run to the breach speech from Henry V. But the first time he gave the performance of the Ages of Man was at the Freemasons Hall in the 1957 Edinburgh Festival to a sold-out house, and it was an overwhelming success. He did it in New York as well, and the only reason I know that is because my dad saw it and used to talk about it all the time. Yeah, in fact, he won a special Tony Award. Uh, it was in, in 1959. Year was that? 1959. 59. 59. Yeah. Son of and a revived in 1963. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think he and he he. It must have been a big money maker for him. I bet. <laughs> he also won a Grammy award for it. How fabulous oh, okay. is that? Yeah, it was his third audio recording of the recital. Um, and he had been nominated for the same award in 1959 and 1964, but he finally won it in 1979. Extremely nice. Um, so on uh, what I have, there's a, a fairly obscure opera called Rosalinda, written by Francesco Veracini in 1744, of all times. Uh, that was not a terribly well-received opera, and it has way fallen out of the repertory, but it does, in fact, exist. Um, in terms of artworks, there's many paintings, but there's a, speaking of the Seven Ages of Man, there's an unusual sculpture of the Seven Ages of Man that I actually discovered when I took a Shakespeare tour in London, I think, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Uh, and it's one head piled on top of another in this 22 foot high column. Um, it's a very unusual tribute. And it's, it's actually reached from the street level outside the British Telecom uh, building uh, called Baynard House. And it's made out of aluminum. It's a public sculpture by R Richard Kindersley. 22, as I said, it's 22 feet high. Uh, it's a column of seven sculpted heads stacked in totem pole fashion on top of each other. The youngest at the bottom and getting older as you progress up the column. How cool. Yeah, it was commissioned in 1980. It, it's um, it's near where the, the site of the Blackfriars Theater, uh, ah, Shakespeare's okay. indoor theater. Yeah, um, it's honestly, it's it's kind of ugly, but in a fascinating way. Well, there can be like ugly things that are beautiful, you know. Indeed, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, do so, you have anything? Oh, go that's ahead. It. That's all I have for As yeah. You Like It. Me too. Um, What's so next? Moving on to the Comedy of Errors. Uh, there's quite a bit on that, actually. Um, probably the most famous is The Boys from Syracuse, which is a musical with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Lawrence Hart based on Comedy of Errors, uh, adapted by librettist George Abbott. It includes the score includes swing and other contemporary rhythms of the 1930s. It premiered on Broadway in 1938 and off Broadway in 1963 with later productions, including a West End run in 63 and a Broadway revival in 2002. Um, Abbott directed and George Balanchine, the famous ballet choreographer, choreographed the original production, which opened on Broadway at the Alvin Theater on November 23rd, 1938, after tryouts in New Haven, Connecticut, and Boston, and ran for 235 performances, closing on June 10th in 1939. I used to listen to that cast album over and over and over again. I love that show. Yeah, it's super fun. Uh, probably the next one is another musical called The Comedy of Errors uh, with a book and lyrics by Trevor Nunn and music by Guy Wolfenden, also based on The Comedy of Errors. Um, it had been previously adapted for the musical stage as The Boys from Syracuse, but they kind of redid it, re-choreographed it, and it um, opened at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1976 and then was transferred to the West End in 77. And then finally, I have The Bombity of Errors, which is a hip-hop theater retelling of Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors. Uh, it has been performed in New York, Off-Broadway, the West End, Chicago, Dublin, Edinburgh, all over the country. It was nominated alongside Stephen Sondheim for Best Lyrics 
of the Drama Desk Awards, uh, but lost to Stephen Sondheim's Saturday Night. It was nominated for Outer Critic Circle Awards, and it received the Jefferson Award in Chicago and the Grand Jury Prize at the HBO U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. It lasts an hour and 30 minutes, and it's part play and part rap concert. And you saw it, didn't you, Owen? I did. I actually did. In the early 2000s, I couldn't tell you exactly what year. It played at a theater uh, downtown in uh, in Manhattan. And I went and saw it. And it was hilarious. Four guys playing all the parts. The Antifoli, the Dromeos, and everything else. And yeah, it's just hip-hop from wall to wall. And it's so funny and fun. I actually have spent, I, I, I wonder if there's some streaming service that, that has the album because I've tried to find it and I lament that I have not been able to. Guys, if you, if you ever, if anybody's doing it anywhere or if you see it online, check it out. It's really great. It actually opened on December 12th, 1999. So you must have seen it in 99, 2000. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Sounds, I, I think it was 2000 that I saw it. God damn, that's 21 years ago. Yes, it is. <laughs> Um, that's all I have on Comedy of Errors, Owen. Uh, there's also a little known opera. There's, a, there's so many operas, you guys, it's, it's mind boggling. Um, but there is an opera, and I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, called Gli Equivoci, Gli Equivoci, which means the misunderstandings. Um, this is an opera, uh, obviously based on Comedy of Errors. The librettist is Lorenzo da Ponte. And if that name is familiar to you, it's because he was Mozart's librettist on uh, Don Giovanni and, and The Marriage of Figaro. Um, and in fact, uh, he wanted Mozart to, to write the, the music for this opera and Mozart for whatever reason did not. So Stephen Storace, who was Mozart's only well-known English student ended up writing the music for Gli Equivoci, which I have never heard, but having done the research and found out all of that, I really want to now. Yeah, I'm curious too. Oh, there is one thing I wanted to say about the Comedy of Errors musical, the one by Trevor Nunn. The cast, Roger Reese was Antiphilus of Syracuse, Judy Dench was Adriana, uh, and Francesca Annis and Richard Griffiths were also in it, and it won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical in 1977. Wow. Yeah. Right? What a cast. Yeah, really. Um, so the next thing is Hamlet, and there's a right. ton. Well, yeah, we're skipping over Cymbeline, because yeah. I couldn't find anything on Cymbeline. I could not find anything on Cymbeline either. Or Coriolanus. Or Coriolanus, that's right. Hamlet, on the other hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot. There's a ton. So let's see where to start. Okay, I will start with... The 15-Minute Hamlet, which is a 1976 comic abridgment of Hamlet written by the famous Tom Stoppard. Um, it was written to be performed with Cahoots Macbeth, which is based on Macbeth, obviously. Um, Tom it, Stoppard is a little obsessed with Hamlet. He certainly is. Oh, my God. Um it condenses the original Hamlet, including all the best-known scenes, into approximately 13 minutes. <laughs> followed by another even more drastically reduced performance of Hamlet uh, from beginning to end the last two minutes. So 15 minute Hamlet runs 15 minutes. It was performed on Broadway for 28 performances, opening on October 3rd, 1979 and closing on October 28th, 1979. In dogs, so it's called Dogs Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. The actors speak a language called dog, which consists of ordinary English words 
uh, with meanings completely different from the ones that are normally assigned them. Doesn't that sound crazy talk? You know, I have to confess, I've known of Dog's Hamlet, Cahoots Macbeth for years and years, but I've never read it or seen it. I'm certainly curious. Now I really want to get the, the duo and read them. Uh, the next thing I have is a play called Fortinbras, written in 1991 by American playwright Lee Blessing. Uh, it is set immediately following Hamlet, so it recounts the events after Hamlet's death that go on throughout Elsinore. It opened on June 18th, 1991 at La Jolla Playhouse. The cast included Laura Linney as Ophelia and Jefferson Mays as Osric, and it was directed by Des Makinoff. Wow, I've read that play, but I've never seen it done. What was it like to read? Uh, it's been a while, but it's it's fascinating. As I, I mean, like Ophelia appears as a ghost, obviously. Uh, everybody appears as a ghost. Yeah, they all. The, the, yeah. yeah, they. That's the the characters from Hamlet come back as as ghosts. I mean, the truth is, I remember reading it and feeling that it was a little derivative of of another Stoppard, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which I'm sure you're going to get to. Yes, I will. Um, that being said, my next one is a play called Gertrude the Cry by British playwright Howard Barker. It had its world premiere in 2002, uh, directed by the author in the Great Hall of Elsinore Castle as part of the annual International Hamlet Festival. It's, uh, it's his reworking of Shakespeare's Hamlet, focusing on the character of Gertrude, which is Hamlet's mother in the play. Um, the next one I have is a play called Hamlet Machine or mm -hmm. Die Hamlet Maschine, which is a postmodernist drama by a German playwright and theater director Heiner Müller, written in 1977, loosely based on Hamlet. Some critics claim the play problemizes the roles of intellectual during the East German communism era. Others argue that the play should be understood in relation to wider postmodern concepts. Can we can we just call it Hamlet Machine? Pretty much. Uh, it does remain, however, Muller's most often performed and arguably his best play today. He directed a seven and a half hour performance of it in Berlin in 1990. Oh, or actually of hours. Hamlet, in which Hamlet Machine was the play within the play. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know what? That's an interest. It's interesting on paper, but seven and a half hours. <laughs> of no Hamlet. Thanks. Seven and a half hours of Hamlet. What did I mean, he Hamlet's, do? Hamlet's already four and a half hours long. I know. I mean, Where did he get the extra three? Is what I yeah. want to know. Enough already. Um, probably one of the two most famous is a play called I Hate Hamlet, which is a which comedy, I have done, which I have done as well. A comedy drama written in 1991 by Paul Rudnick, uh, originally produced on Broadway, opening on April 8th, 1991. There's a really, and I think actually we talked about Nicole Williamson who oh, played yes. the role of John Barrymore in the initial Broadway production. He was notoriously mercurial and uh, to say the least, right? And gradually alienated most of his fellow cast and crew members. That animosity culminated in an injury to his co-star Evan Handler during an onstage sword fight, and Handler quit. Paul on Rudnick, the spot. On the spot, Paul Rudnick later detailed the deterioration of his relationship with Nicol Williamson in a 2008 article for The New Yorker. Yeah. So what so what happened basically is, uh, I mean, very briefly, the ghost of John Barrymore appears to this actor who has to play Hamlet and blah, blah, blah. And they have a sword fight at the end of Act One. And Nicol Williamson did not feel that Evan Handler was, um, you know, 
doing as well as he could. So he hit him in the ass with his sword and said, put some life into it. Not choreographed. Not choreographed. And Evan Handler, this is in the middle of a performance on Broadway. Evan Handler had enough and he put down his sword, walked off the stage, walked out of the stage door, hailed a cab and went home. Can't really blame him. Nope, I don't blame him at all. Although I think it's very interesting. When I did I Hit Hamlet, the gentleman that was playing Barrymore was discovered to have had a fifth of vodka in his bag backstage. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's not so good either. I was much more fortunate. I, I years ago played the Evan Handler role and my dad played John Barrymore. Yeah. Our friend Jason O'Connell played your part. That's, oh, in your production. In my production and Ed Dennehy. A brilliant actor, Jason O'Connell. In truth, truth. And Ed Dennehy, brother of Brian Dennehy, was the aforementioned Barrymore. The aforementioned vodka. Also a brilliant actor, but vodka toting. Right. So, there you go. So there you go. Um, and then there is Ophelia Machine. That's a postmodernist drama by the Polish-born American playwright and dramaturg Magda Romanska. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, this is a response to Heiner Muller's Hamlet Machine. Ah. The production history included groundbreaking experimental texts by Neil Butte, Sarah Kane, Heiner Muller, and Charles Mead. And then there's a play called Poor Murderer. That's a play written by Pavel Kohut that premiered at Ethel Barrymore Theater on Broadway on October 20th, 1976 and closed on January 2nd, 1977 after 87 performances. Yeah, follows, I saw that one too. Yeah, that follows a famous actor under treatment and a mental institution who wonders, did he really kill the actor playing Polonius as he was playing Hamlet or was it only an illusion? I, I saw that play because a friend of my parents was in it, uh, Barbara Coggan, and I was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And I remember being very bored by it, but that could have been a consequence of being 12 or 13. Yeah, probably. Um, of course, probably the most famous take on Hamlet is the musical The Lion King, which is based on the film of the same name, music by Elton John, lyrics by Tim Rice. Um, the Broadway musical was directed by Julie Taymor. It featured actors in animal costumes as well as giant hollow puppets. It debuted on July 8th, 1997 in Minneapolis at the Orpheum and opened on uh, June 13th, 2006 to Broadway to the Minskoff Theater. And we should give a shout out to our personal friend and uh, colleague, co-worker Jeff Gurner, who played Ed the Hyena for quite some time on Broadway right. in The Lion King. That's right. It is still running on Broadway, um, although it is suspended currently to the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, it became the top earning title in box office history for the stage production and the film, surpassing the record previously held by The Phantom of the Opera. It has grossed, The Lion King musical, has grossed nearly $8.1 billion as of 2017. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Crazy talk, right? Good on you. Wow. Um, the next one I want to talk about is Rockabye Hamlet. That's a rock musical with book lyrics and music by Cliff Jones. 
uh, based on Hamlet. Its original title was Kronborg, 1582. It was commissioned by the Canadian uh, Broadcasting Corporation, which first broadcast it as an episode of the radio series The Entertainers on December 1st, 1973. Uh, they revised it and opened it on a Broadway production that was staged as an all-out rock concert directed and choreographed by the famous Gower Champion. It opened on February 17th, 1976 at the Minskoff, but closed after seven performances. Beverly D'Angelo played Ophelia. Wasn't Meatloaf in it? Meatloaf, I was just going to say Meatloaf played the priest. Right. I remember, again, I remember when I didn't see it, but I remember when it was on Broadway and it, I mean, for as brief as it was, it was one of those legendary bombs. Yeah. And I will only say this. I looked it up once. And I, I found the list of the uh, the musical numbers, and I one of my favorite names of a song that you just know is terrible. There is actually a song in that show called "He Got It in the Ear." Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But Jones revised the show in 1981 again. It was staged as something rockin' in Denmark at the Odyssey Theater in Los Angeles and ran for 18 months. Something rockin' in Denmark is actually a little clever. I have to yeah. give it up. <laughs> um, then there's uh, a short comic play by W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan uh, called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, a tragic episode in three tabloids. Uh, first appeared in 1874. It ran at the Court Theater from the 27th of April, 1892 to July 15th, about 77 performances. <laughs> and then there's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. We told you guys there's a shit ton of stuff based on Hamlet. Uh, but this is another famous uh, absurdist existential uh, tragic comedy by Tom Stoppard. First staged at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 1966. Um, it basically takes part sort of in the wings, just between the two courtiers, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, they're, I mean, it takes, so it takes those supporting characters and makes them the leads and the other characters from Hamlet kind of go in and out. And there's another, the other, there's another character called the player That's who right. uh, is the third principal role turned into a movie 15 years ago or so. I think it's Tim Roth, Gary Oldman and Richard Dreyfus. I want to wow. say. The play premiered on April 11th, 1967, returned to the National Theater on December 14th, 1995, uh, with Adrian Scarborough as Rosencrantz and Simon Russin Beale as Guildenstern. My old teacher, Simon. And then in 2011, it was revived in a production directed by Sir Trevor Nunn at the Chichester? Chichester. Yeah. Chichester Festival Theater before transferring to the Theater Royal Haymarket in London's West End starred Samuel Barnett and Jamie Parker. Now, Tim Curry was originally scheduled to appear as the player, but he had a dropout during previews due to ill health. Oh, that's a shame. And then in 2013, an excerpt was performed by Benedict Cumberbatch and Kobna Holdbrook-Smith on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the National Theater. Uh, the Royal National Theater production of it had a one-year-long Broadway run at the Alvin, then transferring to the Eugene O'Neill on January 8th, 1968. The production, which was Stoppard's first on Broadway, by the way, totaled eight previews and 420 performances, nominated wow. for, yeah, nominated for eight Tony Awards and won four Best Play, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, and Best Producer. Also won Best Play from the New York Drama Critics Circle in 1968 and Outstanding Production from the Outer Critics Circle in 1969. 
Yeah, keep your eye on that Stoppard kid. I think he may have something. You think? And then, uh, now I have to say, my favorite one of all is an adaptation called The Skinhead Hamlet. It's a short 1981 parody of the play by Richard Curtis, who is a co-author of Blackadder. If you guys watch uh, any BBC shows, Rowan Atkinson's Blackadder, which I think is fucking brilliant and hilarious. Um, it's according to the editor's note, the play is intended to quote, achieve something like the effect of the new English Bible. But, uh, let me give you an example. The first scene act one, scene one goes as such. It's set in the battlements of Elsinore castle. Enter Hamlet followed by the ghost. Ghost says, oi, mush. Hamlet says, your ghost says, oi, was fucked. Exit the ghost. Hamlet says, "Oi, fuck!" Exit Hamlet, and yeah, goes on kind from of play. there. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I have for Hamlet. Oh my God! Okay, so let's. <laughs> I just it, again, it's a little peculiar. There's really only one opera of Hamlet that kind of ever gets performed. But to give you some idea, forty operas of Hamlet have been written since 1812. Forty. But on, only Amboise Thomas's from 1868 is actually in the repertory. Many, many, many famous uh, composers have tried or at least thought about writing operas of Hamlet. These include Verdi, Bizet, Berlioz, Glinka, Debussy, Mendelssohn, Prokofiev, Respighi, and Schumann. Jesus. They all at least wrote some sketches or some, or, you know, they, they, they worked on trying to make an opera of Hamlet and they gave it up as impossible. Uh, Thomas's opera is not considered to be, you know, one of the greats, but it does get done. Uh, and it's ironic that there, that so few are, that only really that one is ever performed. There are bunches of novels. One of the most, what, one of the most prominent one is an, a novel called Gertrude and Claudius by the very well-known novelist, John Updike. Um, it uses uh, known sources of William Shakespeare's Hamlet to tell a story that draws on the rather straightforward revenge tale uh, in the original medieval uh, Danish, depicted by Saxo Grammaticus in the 12th century. But it also incorporates extra plot elements added uh, by Francois de Belforest in his Histoire Tragique in 1576. And finally, it brings in various elements from Shakespeare's plays, including uh, the name Carambus for Polonius and the bad quarter of six, from the bad quarter of 1603. Uh, this story in its three forms is primarily concerned with Hamlet, or as he's known as Amleth in the original Danish, avenging his father's murder. Uh, but the story actually begins earlier. It's concerned with the, the earlier life of Gertrude Claudius and old Hamlet, and it ends at the close of act one, scene two of Hamlet. Uh, recently, there's a book called Hamnet, by Maggie O'Farrell. Which I got for Christmas and I'm really excited to start reading. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. It's not a straightforward adaptation of, of Hamlet, but it's, it, it's concerned with Hamnet, who, for those of you who don't know, that was the name of Shakespeare's son, his only son, who died not that long before Hamlet. We, we were pretty sure Hamlet was written. So uh, draw your own conclusions as to what effect that might've had on Shakespeare. Uh, also, Gillian Flynn is working on a, a retelling of Hamlet that's due for release this year in 2021 as part of the Hogarth series. And the Hogarth Shakespeare project is actually really interesting. 
Um, uh, Penguin is the publisher of this for the Hogarth Press. The, the, it's an effort by a, a group of writers to retell works by Shakespeare for a, a modern audience. And to do this, they've commissioned well-known writers to select and reimagine the play. So Gillian Flynn is working on, uh, on a, a retelling of Hamlet. But I'm going to talk about some of the other novels in the, in the Hogarth series as we get to the plays that they're based on. Which I've read a couple of, and they're amazing. I actually haven't read any of them, but I'm dying to. Oh, my God, they're fabulous. So, I read the one uh, that was done by Margaret Atwood, which was... Oh, uh, Hagseed? Yeah, which is The Tempest one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, well, you can talk about what, that one when we get there, but I'm dying to read that one. Also, there's <laughs> one by Ann Tyler that I really want to read. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many artworks, graphic artworks based on Hamlet that uh, it's impossible to talk about all of them, but I want to mention a couple of famous ones. Um, there's a very famous painting of Ophelia in, from 1851 by Sir John Everett Millay that I would be very surprised if people that are listening to this podcast haven't seen. Um, John Everett Millay was one of the pre-Raphaelites in the Victorian era, and Shakespeare was very popular with the pre-Raphaelites. This depicts Ophelia just before she drowned. She's floating in that, in, in that sort of lake, not lake, but sort of stream with the flowers all around her. Um, it's very beautiful and haunting. And Laurence Olivier liberally borrowed from that image for his death of Ophelia in his uh, film version. Um, maybe even more famous than that particular painting is Alphonse Mucha's uh, illustration of Sarah Bernhardt as Hamlet. Alphonse Mucha, you, you would also be familiar with if I, if I could show you some of his work. He's an Art Nouveau painter, uh, actually uh, not French, but Hungarian. Um, but he worked in Paris and uh, Sarah Bernhardt was very influential. She was the great actress of that time who played Hamlet over and over again. And he made a very, very famous poster depicting her as Hamlet that uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's very, very, very influential. And, you know, there's, there's a ton more, but those are the big famous ones. Yes. So moving on from the myriad of stuff based on Hamlet um the next thing we have is king lear well actually ah. there's the henry's but there's nothing right. about those well there's henry so henry the henry the fourth part one is next chronologically and i couldn't neither of us could find any straight up adaptation of of henry the fourth however there's a sort of a subcategory of adaptations which is uh adaptations involving the character of sir john falstaff um, there are at least there, there's, okay, let's see. There's Falstaff, the opera, which we'll talk, uh, that is basically follows the plot of the Merry Wives of Windsor. Um, but it's called Falstaff. There's also an opera called At the Boar's Head by Gustav Holst from 1925. I love um, Holst. Love, the Planets is one of my favorite pieces ever. Me, me too. There's another opera called Sir John in Love by Ralph Vaughan Williams in 1929. Uh, and in 1849, uh, Otto Nikolai wrote an adaptation of um, the, the Merry Wives of Windsor called Die Kustigen Weiber. <laughs> Can you <laughs> say that again, opera. please? Die Kustigen Weiber. <laughs> it's fun to talk in German. <laughs> um, oh also, there's a, there's a very, very famous novel uh, called Falstaff by Robert Nye from 1976, which is sort of an, it's 
the autobiographical musings of Falstaff, and uh, it's kind of like it, it takes the form of a tell-all memoir from the point of view of Falstaff, and it's absolutely brilliant, you guys. I mean, seriously, check it out. Uh, it's really fun and and very well. It's it's sort of in an, it's very well known in a niche way, sort of a cult classic, if you will. Um, also, this is a, I mean, you were doing comics, but you, this is a minor character in Batman, the Gordian Falstaff, which we actually used images of when we did our uh, our little Christmas poem, "A Visit from Saint Falstaff." That's right. So fall, I mean, it's not exactly Falstaff, but it's like a Falstaffian figure called Gordian Falstaff is a very, very minor Batman villain. Nice. <laughs> um, and then there's Julius Caesar, which again, I have nothing. Do you? I do. Hold on for me. There's a, an opera called La Morte di Cesare, The Death of Caesar. Uh, and that's an opera seria in three acts by Francesco Bianchi in 1788. Also, there's a very famous uh, painting of Brutus and the Ghost of Julius Caesar by William Blake, the famous poet and illustrator uh, from 1806. And I should say, you know, Blake is Blake is largely known for his uh, for his poetry, of course, but he was also a great illustrator. and painter inspired by classical literature. He did a lot of work on Dante as well as Shakespeare. And he, he made many watercolors of, the, of Shakespeare's plays, including Macbeth and a very beautiful landscape of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, in this particular work, Caesar's ghost uh, pays a visit to Brutus taunting him about his imminent defeat. And the truth is the, the moment is much more evocative uh, than just the words in the, in, in the play. In, in the play, Shakespeare just basically says, hey, Brutus, I'll see you at the battle. <laughs> <laughs> and Brutus is like, uh, okay. Um, but in this, the, this, this painting uh, is really cool. So if you are, again, I, I can't do it justice on just, a, you know, without the visuals, but look it up and check it out. That's what I got on Julius Caesar. Beautiful. Uh, so having done Julius Caesar, I think that brings us up to King John, uh, a play that I'm actually quite fond of and which we just read in our Shakespeare Sunday series. But Unfortunately, I could not find any adaptations of King John. No, I couldn't either. And, you know, uh, although we've discussed that we think there's some problems with that play, I do think there's some incredibly beautiful language. No, it's it's definitely, I mean, it's rough around the edges, that play, but it's one of, I think it's one of Shakespeare's most underrated. Agreed. So, therefore, moving on to King Lear. Definitely not an underrated play. No. Oh, my goodness, no. And there's lots on Lear, too. The first thing I have is uh, this is an opera play. So I have it by Gu Zhidong in 1982 called Birthday Celebration by Five Daughters. Uh, it's set in the Ming Dynasty before and after the fall of Yan Song. Uh, there is similarity between that story and that of King Lear, even though Gu Zhidong never actually acknowledged any Shakespeare influence. But when you look at it, you're like, come on, this is, this is King Lear. Um, sort of like Ron, the movie. Absolutely like Ron, which we've talked about in, in another episode. Um, the next one I have is a play called The History of King Lear by Nahum Tate. First appeared in 1681, about 75 years after Shakespeare's version. Uh, and it is believed to have replaced Shakespeare's version on the oh, English it did. stage. Yeah, in it whole did. or in part until 1838. But it has a happy ending. With Lear yes. regaining his throne, Cordelia marrying Edgar, and Edgar joyfully declaring, quote, 
that truth and virtue shall at last succeed. Yeah, the Nam Tate version was did hold the stage for many, many years and is now notorious for having completely changed the ending. Yeah, the tragic ending was briefly restored by Edmund Keane in 1823, though. And fortunately, we, we never see the Nam Tate version done anymore. Yeah, because come on. Uh, the next one I have is a three-act play called Lear, written in 1971 by the British dramatist Edward Bond, uh, first produced at the Royal Court Theatre in 1971, revived by the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1982, and then again at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield in 2005 with Ian McDiarmid. Wow. Yeah. Emperor Palpatine himself. That's right. Uh, Bond was a socialist. He was attempting to reverse modern trends which focused on the Shakespeare play as an artistic experience. Whatevs. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it was also presented at the Royal Court Theater, like I said, uh, directed by William Gaskell in 71, including Bob Hoskins in the cast. Oh, my goodness. Right. Uh, Mirelle Efros was an 1898 Yiddish play by Jacob Gordon. It's also been called the Jewish Queen Lear. The title character is a powerful Jewish matriarch who becomes bitterly estranged from her own family. Um, hmm. And then there's the Yiddish King Lear, which right. is an 1892 play by Jacob Gordon, generally seen as ushering in the first great era of Yiddish theater in the Yiddish Theater District in New York. And it was actually produced off-Broadway a couple of years ago, about two blocks from where I'm sitting right now at the Connolly Theater on 4th Street. Uh, and a, a, do you know Joel Leffert? I don't know if you know I do well you indeed know Joel. know Joel Leffert. Have you worked with him? I have not. He's a brilliant actor that I've known for many, many years. And he uh, actually, in the same, he called it his year of Lear because he played the Jewish King Lear and I saw it. It was quite brilliant. And then later that, that same year, uh, he played King Lear in King Lear. In, uh, in, in a repertory with a, with a show, with the company that I was involved with that summer. That's crazy. So it was crazy. Uh, that's all I have in Lear, on Lear. Oh, well, there's, a couple Lear. Of, there's a couple of options. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little leery. Um, <laughs> oh, um, there's a couple of operas. There's an opera called Kuningas Lear. Uh, that's an opera in two acts by Aulis Salonen. Uh, actually, there's three. There's a Lear, just plain Lear as an opera with two parts by the German composer Arabe Reimann from 1975. You just love saying and those German names. I do. You just love saying such German names. <laughs> Lisa Ann, are your papers in order? All my papers are in order. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's another opera called Vision of, Vision of Lear. Um, which again is an opera by uh, Toshio Hosokawa, which premiered at the Munich Biennale in 1998. Also, Verdi, once again, as with Hamlet, he thought about trying to write an opera of King Lear, but he never actually came through. Um, there's a couple of novels. There's a novel called A Thousand Acres by James Smiley. Uh, basically, the way it's described is if you take King Lear uh, and set it in modern day Iowa, uh, you might win the 1992 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. What um, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> right? This also got made into a major motion picture with Jason Robards as the Lear character and featuring Michelle Pfeiffer and Jessica Lange as the, uh, as the daughters. There's also, and this sort of crosses over because I know you did comics, but there's the uh, graphic novel Fool by Christopher Moore. That's uh, right. 
I love Christopher Moore, and I have a couple of his other books to talk about later. Yeah, yeah. He didn't he do like Serpent of Venice? Serpent of Venice and Shakespeare for Squirrels. Shakespeare for I don't know Shakespeare for Squirrels. Because it's brand new and it just came out and I got it for a Christmas. Ah, son, of, son of a gun. Uh, also, oh, you just very nice. Uh, also, we were talking about the Hogarth series, those retold Shakespeare plays, that, uh, Shakespeare novels. Um, there's a version of King Lear called Dunbar by Edward St. Aubin, which I have not read, but sounds fascinating. Yes. And that's all that I got all on there. Yeah. yeah, me too. Uh, and then comes Love's Labor's Lost and everybody was just like, I'm not even going to deal with this one. Yeah, str- it, it would, it's strangely, there's nothing there on Love's Labor's Lost. Nothing on the really other hand, it. on the other hand, now we get to one that there's plenty on. The Big Mackers, Macbeth. Oh, there's a ton. Uh, shall I start? I'll start. Please do. Dunsinane is a 2010 play by David Krieg. It premiered in a Royal Shakespeare Company production at the Hampstead Theater from February 10th to March 6, 2010. Uh, Its narrative is formed by the events that followed the defeat of Macbeth by Malcolm and Macduff, which is really interesting to me. Um, They also had a radio adaptation of it that appeared on BBC Radio 3 on uh, January 30th of 2011. Yeah, Just Macbeth is a version of uh, Macbeth written by Australian children's author Andy Griffiths. Uh, Just Macbeth was released as a book in June 2009. Uh, It contains pictures. It's part of a series. Several things were changed from the play. For example, the king sings a generic song and there was a song in the original called Happy Tree Friends. And uh, in the re-release, the song Happy Tree Friends is changed to, I kid you not, axe-wielding, blood-sucking freaks. <laughs> I got to get a hold of that. Oh, you! I love that. Um, there's a short comic skit by George Bernard Shaw written in 1960 called Macbeth Skit. Um, about Macbeth's relationship with Lady Macbeth. It was written for a performance by Lila McCarthy and Gerald du Maurier, actors who had recently appeared in productions of Macbeth, but uh, du Maurier wouldn't do it. So it actually was unpublished and unperformed during Shaw's lifetime. Um, It takes lines from Act One, Scenes Five and Seven of Macbeth, Uh, Lady Macbeth typically retains Shakespeare's lines while Macbeth speaks in modern colloquial English, often expressing confusion about what she's saying. So basically in Shaw's version, Macbeth is transformed into, quote, a maundering nincompoop. (laughs) Well, we can agree that that he's not the the sharpest knife in the drawer, which is a strange metaphor for him. But you know what I mean? Not a not a bright guy. Then there's Macbeth, which is a Eugene Ionesco satire written in 1972. Written during the Cold War, it remolds Shakespeare's Macbeth into a comic tale of ambition, corruption, cowardice, and excess, creating a tragic farce which takes human folly to its wildest extremes. Uh, It includes a long conversation between the Thanes of Gloms and and Candor, I think they might mean Cawdor. Yeah, that might be a typo. Yeah, Uh, but the characters are a lemonade seller and a butterfly hunter. (laughs) 
Oh, Eugenie Inesco, you you wacky guy. Wacky, wacky guy. And then there's Mac Bird, which is a 1967 satire play by Barbara Garson. Uh, it superimposes the John F. Kennedy assassination onto the plot of Shakespeare's Macbeth. So in the play, Kennedy becomes John Kenno Dunk. Lyndon Johnson becomes McBird. Lady Bird Johnson becomes Lady McBird, etc. Uh, the play opened just three years after Kennedy's assassination was very controversial. And some believe that authorities pressured theaters in New York against producing it. The Village Gate down in the village was the only theater to defy that pressure. It opened there on February 22nd, 1967 and closed on January 21st, 1968 after 386 performances. And get this original cast, Stacy Keach, Rue McClanahan, William Devane, John Plachette, Cleavon Little, and David Spielberg. Good heavens. I know. Uh, and then it was recorded on a two-disc album. Then we have Mac Homer, which is a one-person play written by Rick Miller, which blends Shakespeare's tragedy Macbeth with the animated television series the Simpsons. He first conceived of it, uh, Rick Miller, when he was performing in a production of Macbeth. Uh, the first performance was done at the Montreal Fringe Festival in 1995. The script of the play remains 85% Shakespeare and mostly follows the plot of Macbeth. Miller performs it by himself, uh, all of the various roles, using voices from the Simpsons characters, using more than 50 voices, which is pretty Wow. Amazing. Yeah, that he's impressive. performed the play in over 150 cities in the world. He says that he tours sporadically, partly because he doesn't like to perform it straight on for months, but also because he likes to fit in his other projects. And then speaking of The Simpsons, there was an episode of The Simpsons in 2009, uh, May 10th was the first broadcast, called Four Great Women and a Manicure. It's the 20th episode of the 20th season of The Simpsons. And one of those four stories is Lady Macbeth. It's the third one where Marge relates a story of ruthless ambition embodied by Lady Macbeth. Very nice. The Scottish play is a play by American playwright Lee Blessing, uh, set at a Shakespeare festival in Michigan, examines the history of this, quote, Scottish play curse associated with theater workers and performers. As you all know, if you've listened, uh, Owen does not like to call the play Macbeth. I don't give a crap. But there is. But for those that don't know, there is a superstition involved with it. You're not and really only in a theater. You're not supposed to quote from it or say the name. That's and right. You Unless do, you do. There are a number. Right. Unless you're doing it. Um, but anyway, I, I'm, I have I have overcome my superstition to some degree. Oh, good. Uh, the next play is called The Scottish Play, a play written by Graham Holiday, published by Samuel French. Uh, this play features Michael, one of the better actors in a, a fictional amateur theater uh, called the Shellsfoot Thespians, who dreams of directing Macbeth um, and then finds out that uh, it's being done and his best friend and his wife get cast. And he begins to wonder if this is due by his stubborn desire to not take into account the curse associated with the play. And then a really big one, I think, uh, which I loved, is called Sleep No More. And Sleep ah, No yes. More is an immersive theater production created by British theater company punch drunk based on their original 2003 london production the company reinvented sleep no more in a co-production with uh, art or the american repertory theater um, which opened in brookline mass on october 8th 2009 
won the Elliot Norton Award for Best Theatrical Experience in 2010. But then they went forward with it. Uh, they extended the run and it was sold out. But then they redid it as a New York City production of a site-specific worth, also created by Punch Drunk. It opened on March 7th, 2011. It won the 2011 Drama Desk Award for Unique Theatrical Experience and won Punch Drunk as a company special citations at the 2011 Obie Awards for Design and Choreography. Um, it took place on five floors of a fictional place called the McKittrick Hotel in uh, Chelsea's Gallery District, which was actually three adjoining warehouses. And you basically follow whoever you want. I went back to see it because I was so blown away by the production. Uh, you can't possibly see it all. Did you see it, Owen? You know what? I've, I have never seen it. And I, it, it kind of, I feel embarrassed not to have seen it. But I'm, I, there, I, I assume that it will reopen once, you know, theater is a thing again. Uh, what's the name of the actor that played uh, Doogie Howser? Oh, Neil Patrick Harris? Yes. So the second time I went, I had an encounter with Neil Patrick Harris. And I was like, holy crap. But the thing is, the audience is not allowed to talk. Like, they tell you that. You are not allowed to talk and you have you to wear, wear a mask. mask. Yeah. But I knew it was Neil Patrick Harris because he was in the cast. And then uh, a few weeks later, I found out that he had gone and was so blown away with it that he had come to Punch Drunk and asked them if he might be part of the cast for one night and i just happened to be there that night it was that's cool. so cool yeah. here's my question here's my question because i've seen those masks those plastic masks that they make you wear i have what one do you hanging do? up right over there what what do you do if you wear glasses i don't know because i don't wear glasses I, know. I think i think the mask is structured so that the front of it comes out a little so there's space for glasses underneath I, I i don't know i've looked at those masks and i'm like that looks like impossible certainly to put your glasses over and it, it's always it's I, I mean it's like when you go to see a 3d movie and you have to put the 3d glasses over your own glasses it's terrible it's prejudicial against those of us that wear glasses this is why i had laser surgery in the year 2000 yeah, you can't I uh, see I have I have progressives, so you can't correct for both. That's true. Uh and that's all I have for Mackers. Well, there's um, you know, I mean these these operas are so famous that it's it's hardly worth talking about, but they need to be mentioned. Uh there's the Macbeth by Ernest Bloch from 1910, but the most famous opera is of course Macbeth by uh Giuseppe Verdi in 1847. Uh, the 10th opera that he wrote and the first opera that he wrote based on Shakespeare. Of course, Shakespeare was a rich source for him because he also wrote Falstaff, which we've spoken about, and maybe most famously his Otello, which we will talk about more. Um, but Macbeth continues to be one of the most performed operas in all of the repertory. There's also a very, very famous painting of Ellen Terry as Lady Macbeth by John Singer Sargent. Lisa, and you know that painting well. I believe you have a print that my mom gave you many years ago. I do. And it is hanging right by my bedside. And actually, I also have a wonderful mug that Owen <laughs> sent me for my birthday that has that Ellen Terry portrait. And it says, what would Lady Macbeth do? Yes, a question we should all ask ourselves regularly. Um, but this painting by, by Sargent is, is really quite beautiful. Uh, and Dame Ellen Terry, we've mentioned her before. She was a very famous actress at the uh, end of the 19th and beginning of the, er, the 20th century. 
Um, and at the very first, her first performance of Lady Macbeth in 1888, Sargent was so struck by Terry's appearance that he persuaded her to sit for a portrait. Now the pose that she's, do, she, she's striking in that painting is actually not from that production. Uh, Sargent invented that pose and Oscar Wilde, who saw Terry show up at Sargent's Chelsea studio, uh, famously remarked, quote, the street that on a wet and dreary morning has vouchsafed the vision of Lady Macbeth in full regalia, magnificently seated in a four-wheeler, can never be again as other streets. It must always be full of wonderful possibilities. Um, in terms of novels, there's really not so much that I could find, but there is a novel called Macbeth by Joe Nesbo. And again, that's part of the Hogarth series. Right. Um, and I have not read that one either, but I'm, I, I'm very fan. I've got to dive into that Hogarth series. Interestingly enough, I was, I was introduced to the Hogarth series by a student of mine, Simon Nigam, who is a brilliant young acting student. And he told so me talented. Yeah. So talented. Uh, the youngest person that does our reading series with us. Mm -hmm. For good We're reason. both uh, but very yeah, fond he, of Simon. He was the one who told me about it and I went and got uh, my first one and I absolutely love them. Oh, also one last thing on the Scottish play there very recently, there was a musical version of the movie Scotland PA that was done by the roundabout theater company here in New York city. That's right. Which I did not get to see, unfortunately. No, neither did I. Um, so I think our next play is measure for measure. Is it not? Yes, it is. Um, let's see. I have a dramatic adaptation of Measure for Measure called The Law Against Lovers, which was arranged by Sir William Davenant and staged by the Duke's Company in 1662. Uh, it was the first of many Shakespearean adaptations staged during the Restoration. Uh, but Davenant was not shy about changing the Bard's work. He based the text on Measure for Measure, but he added Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing, resulting in a, quote, bizarre and fascinating combination. In fact, Samuel Pepys saw it on February 18th, 1662, but was pleased by it. He recorded in his diary, I went to the opera and saw The Law Against Lovers, a good play and well-performed, especially the little girls whom I never saw act before dancing and singing. And, you know, female performers were still a pretty that was a novelty at that time. Yeah. yeah. Also, Dav it should be mentioned, Davenant probably had no problem changing Shakespeare's words around because he claimed to be the bastard son of William Shakespeare. Did he really? Oh, yes. Was William it ever Dav proven? His, it was, of course, it was never proven. There was no Maury Povich then. Well, that's true. But... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, Davenant was a was a playwright in the Restoration, and he he had a plausible claim because Shakespeare possibly knew his parents who ran an inn that Shakespeare may or may not have stayed in when he was traveling back and forth between Stratford and London. And Davenant da Davenant definitely uh, is connected to that family, and it's so yeah he he let it, he kind of le leaked it that he was maybe the bastard, the illegitimate child of William Shakespeare. Interesting. There's no way of knowing. Uh, that little girl that Samuel Pepys was talking about uh, was Maul Davis, was, who was then only about 14 years old. And Son she of danced, a gun. Yeah, she danced a saraband while playing the castanets. How uh, nice. The next thing I have is round heads and pointed heads, or round heads and pointed heads, which is German. Uh, it's an epic parable play written by Bertolt Brecht. 
in which the rulers maintain their control by setting the people with round heads against those with pointed heads, thereby substituting racial relations for their antagonistic class relations. Oy, it's an, Oy, say that, say that three times. Fast. I know, right? It's a satirical anti-Nazi parable. Um, gotcha. But it was first conceived at the suggestion of Ludwig Berger, the theater and film director. Um, Brecht considered Measure for Measure to be Shakespeare's most philosophical and progressive work and argued that, quote, those in positions of authority ought not to demand of their subjects a moral stance which they cannot adopt themselves. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and the only other thing I have is a version of... There's a there's a cartoon series Rick and Morty which I absolutely adore. It's one of the favorites in our household. And there's an episode uh, which was first broadcast on Adult Swim called the Autoerotic Assimilation episode, uh, and it features a war between two races of aliens who look exactly alike, except one has flat nipples with concentric rings, while the other has cone shaped nipples. Well, alrighty then. <laughs> <laughs> that one's for Don. <laughs> So I couldn't I couldn't find a whole lot on Measure for Measure, uh, but but there is interestingly an opera that I'd never heard of called Das Lieferbot, oh, or God. The Ban on Love, uh, <laughs> by of all people Richard Wagner, from very early on in his career, and it that has fallen out of the repertory. It was when before Richard Wagner found his his particular voice and was still trying to write mainstream music. It was not terribly well received when he wrote it and has since fallen out. It was written all the way back in 1836. So very early on in his career. Um, the only other thing that I could find a, a, a fairly recent vintage. And I remember when it was on was a musical called Desperate Measures uh, set in the wild west. Um, that was, I think one theater row for a while here, a couple of years ago. And um, I, I know people that saw it and liked it, but I, I, I did not see it myself. Nor did I. Uh, so I think that's it for Measure for Measure, huh? Mm -hmm. I think that leads us to Merchant of Venice. Yes, Merchant of Venice. Would you like to start this time, Owen? Sure. Um, I think you probably have more than I do. There's just a couple not of a not time, again, actually. not not very well known operas. Uh, two of them. One called La Marchande de Venise. Uh, it, that's a French opera in three acts by Ronaldo Hahn that premiered in 1935. And much more recently, there's uh, an opera called Just the Merchant of Venice by Andrei Tchaikovsky. Uh, I have no idea if he's uh, any relation of Tchaikovsky. Uh, that was first, that was written, was actually written between, nobody's really sure because it wasn't performed until 2013, but it was written sometime between 1968 and uh, 1982. Also, there's a there's a novel called Shylock is My Name by Howard Jacobson, which is, again, part of that Hogarth reading series. Right. Uh, I have The Merchant, which is a 1976 play by the English dramatist Arnold Wesker. It is based on Merchant of Venice and it focuses on Shylock. Uh, he began writing the play after seeing a 1973 performance by Laurence Olivier. The play pre uh, premiered in Stockholm in 76 and was later renamed Shylock. It was meant to premiere on Broadway in 1977, but the Broadway production was canceled due to the death of the play's lead, which was multiple Tony Award winner Zero Mostel. He did one performance and then went into the hospital with, quote, an infection and died of heart failure six days later. 
Wesker had the playwright had high hopes that it would make a big profit, but it didn't happen. So in 1999, he wrote a book about the play called The Birth of Shylock and the Death of Zero Mostel. Then there's a musical called Shylock, adapted and composed by Ed Dixon that debuted at the York Theater in 1987 with Dixon in the title role. Uh, That performance got him a Drama Desk nomination for Best Actor in a Musical. Uh, There's a one act 80 minute play monologue play called Shylock written by Canadian playwright Mark Laren Young. It premiered at Bard on the Beach on August 5th, 1996, and it starred popular Canadian radio host David Berner. Its American debut was in 1998 at Philadelphia's Walnut Street Theater. And it focuses on a Jewish actor named John Davies, who's featured as Shylock in a production of Merchant of Venice. And uh, this character, John Davies, addresses his audience at a talkback session after the play. And the play had, has been closed abruptly due to a controversy over the play's alleged anti-Semitism. Uh-huh. Yeah, right? Um, and it's interesting because the, the character, John Davies, is portrayed both in and out of character, kind of presenting and stripping down the layers between character and actor, which I imagine, mm. uh, you know, if you're a Jewish person playing Shylock, there's, there's a lot of shit that's got to be oh unpackaged my there. Absolutely. And then, as I said before, there is another book by Christopher Moore called The Serpent of Venice. Three prominent Venetians await their most loathsome and foul dinner against the erstwhile envoy from the Queen of Britain, the rascal fool, Pocket, which is the, the character. The character in Fool in, is. Yeah, in, in Fool. Mm-hmm. Um, and this trio of plotters, Antonio, Brabantio, and Iago, have lured Pocket to a dark dungeon, promising an evening of spirits and debauchery with a rare Amontillado sherry and Brabantio's beautiful daughter, Portia. So crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so you're kind of that, that it, it's mixing in a lot of different elements there. He does that, Christopher Moore. He's brilliant, and uh, I just I think he's hilariously funny, like laugh out loud funny. So, I I recommend him to all of our listeners. But that's all I have. Right. So that leads us to Merry Wives of Windsor. Um, uh, really, I mean, I've already talked about the opera by Verity Falstaff, which basically follows the plot of of Merry Wives of Windsor. But that's pretty much all I got. In terms of adaptations. Well, I have a play by William Kenrick in 1760 and 1766, uh, which is a sequel to Shakespeare's Henry IV Part II and The Merry Wives of Windsor. Most of the characters are carried over from those two Shakespeare plays. It was first staged in 1760, but was not a success. And it was infrequently revived thereafter. Um, Yeah. You know, the original version was dedicated to the best-known Falstaff of that era, uh, an actor mm-hmm. named James Quinn. And the other thing I have is a musical based on Merry Wives called Lone Star Love or The Merry Wives of Windsor, Texas. The score is by Jack Herrick of the Red Clay Ramblers. Uh, and the setting of the piece has been moved to the Wild West shortly after the American Civil War, and it features country and bluegrass music. After a long development process, uh, beginning in Houston, Texas, it had an off-Broadway run in the 2004 to 2005 season at the John Hausman Theater, directed by Michael Bogdanov and choreographed by Randy Skinner and featured Beth Level and J.O. Sanders. Right. And it, actually, I believe there was a production that was supposed to come to Broadway starring Randy Quaid, and then he lost his fucking mind. Yeah. And things went sideways. 
Yeah, it was supposed to happen in 2007 at the Belasco. Uh, the New York Times reported that there was, quote, disagreement about the interpretation of the Falstaff character between one of the producers and Quaid and his wife, who is his manager. And the producers, quote, felt the show is not quite ready for Broadway. <laughs> Basically, the Quays refused to make the changes to the script that was being asked of them. So they booted. Well, there you go. They yeah. booted it. Uh, so does that bring us to Midsummer? It does. It was supposed to, by the way, include Robert Cuccioli and D. Hody as well. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it for that. Next. Uh, next up is Midsummer. Um, so there's a very there's a very well known opera by Benjamin Britten from 1960 called Midsummer Night's Dream. But prob- but even more influentially, there's uh, the Fairy Queen by Henry Purcell from 1692. And interestingly, this is actually considered to be the very first opera based on Shakespeare. Uh, it's a little dodgy because obviously it does, it's not called a Midsummer Night's Dream, and it isn't really a full opera. Uh, it Vaguely, it follows the plot of Midsummer Night's Dream and even in- incorporates some of the text from Shakespeare's play. And it's filled with interludes of music written by, and some songs written by Purcell. Um, even though he, it isn't a full blown opera, but historically speaking, it's considered to be the first attempt at an opera based on a Shakespeare play. Right. So it holds, a, it holds a place in history. It's, a, it's very important for that reason. Um, there's actually a fascinating novel by the, the, sci- the science fiction slash fantasy writer Paul Anderson called A Midsummer Tempest, um, which is a, one, of my, it's one of my favorite books. Um, it's so much fun. Basically, um, it, 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 he writes about a world whose reality is that of Shakespeare's play, where Shakespeare is known as the historian. Most of the most, if not all of the dialogue is in iambic pentameter and Oberon, Titania, Puck, Ariel and Caliban, uh, they all show up and they help the the protagonist, Prince Rupert, who is a a loyal and ultimately victorious supporter of King Charles I. And different there are cameo appearances by different characters from all of the from some of Paul Anderson's books and many of Shakespeare's plays. It's just it's it's a weird book, but it's so much fun. I highly, highly recommend it. Well, let's see. I have uh, my favorite, probably based on Midsummer Night's Dream, is The Donkey Show, a Midsummer oh, Night's Disco, show. which I just adored. I had the best time in the world. It's a theatrical adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, that was really fun. Super fun. Uh, created in a disco era style. It was written by Diane Paulus and her husband, Randy Weiner. Um, and it appeared off-Broadway opening August 18th, 1999, and ran for six years subsequently. Yeah, it was a huge hit. Yeah, including venues in England, Scotland, France, and Spain. It ran uh, in the space at ART. It was revived in 2009 uh, until September 2019, so it ran for another 10 years. Jesus Christ. I know. Um, The Dreaming is a musical written by Howard Goodall and Charles Hart, based on Midsummer, but reset in the Edwardian period, initially performed by the National Youth Music Theater. In 2012, it was staged at the Lester's Curve Theater. There's a 1983 play called The Park or Der Park, uh, a play written by the German writer Boho Strauss. It's loosely based on Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, He had worked on his own translation, but decided to adapt it into a new play with a modern day setting. But it was the basis for a 1992 opera, Owen, called Parkin, oh. by the oh, composer Hans Gifford. Yeah. 
What is up with all these German ab- adaptations? Toss Germans. I don't know. And then back to Christopher Moore. My one of my 2020 Christmas presents was the new book by Christopher Moore called Shakespeare for Squirrels. Um, Shakespeare meets Dashiell Hammett in this crazy murder mystery. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's like a hard-boiled take on on the Bard's most performed play, *Midsummer Night's Dream*, featuring Pocket, that same hero from *Fool* and *The Serpent of Venice*, along with his sidekick Drool and his pet monkey Jim. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delightful, I have to say. And let's see, the there are ballets. *The Dream* is a one-act ballet adapted from *Midsummer Night's Dream* with choreography by Frederick Ashton to music by Mendelssohn. Uh, premiered at the Royal Ballet at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden on April 2nd, 1964, in a triple bill uh, presented to mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. And then, of course, there's the famous A Midsummer Night's Dream, a two-act ballet choreographed by George Balanchine, also to Felix Mendelssohn's music. Um, It was Balanchine's first completely original full-length ballet. And it premiered at New York City Ballet on the 17th of January, 1962, with Edward Villela in the role of Oberon. Uh, and that ballet employs a very large uh, children's corps de ballet. Wow. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a bunch of comics that are based on A Midsummer Night's Dream. The first is Celtic Tales, uh, also known as the Celt, which is a volume of comics that brings together this character, Calto Mortiz's adventures. He's a Maltese sailor. Um, one of them is called A Midwinter Morning's Dream. Uh, takes place in Stonehenge uh, on the 21st of December in 1917 for the winter solstice. And many creatures from Celtic mythology are meeting to discuss this dramatic event which is that germans will soon attack england and with them will come characters from germanic mythology who could threaten them so exactly again with the germans i know right so it so it takes a mortal to help them and uh, a character cordo who's sleeping nearby is awakened uh by puck who is changed from a raven and instructed to support him okay then right (laughs) There's one called Dream Country, which is the third trade paperback collection of the comic book series, The Sandman, published by DC, and it is written by Neil Gaiman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it contains four independent stories, and one of them is called A Midsummer Night's Dream. It introduces Morpheus, which is a major character in the series. Uh, it, cre- it introduces his creative partnership with William Shakespeare. And this is the only comic book to ever win a World Fantasy Award. So far. So far. Uh, to this point, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I have on Midsummer. Uh, which leads us to Much Ado. And all, I have one little thing on Much Ado. There's, a, again, an opera by a famous composer, Hector Berlioz, that has fallen out of the repertory. Uh, Beatrice et Benedict. Yep, I have one thing, too. It was a, a musical... Uh, the second new musical to emerge, for, emerge from uh, this new musicals program at Northwestern University called The Boys Are Coming Home. It was written in 2005, uh, but the musical is set in the year 1945 when American servicemen returned home from World War II. It was listed on the Goodman Theater in Chicago's uh, 2007 to 2008 season, but... <laughs> Once again, irreconcilable artistic points of view among the key collaborators scuffed the planned premiere. 
Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, well, much more successful operas were made of Othello True. Um, that are still performed, both called Othello. The first by Rossini in 1816. It was the first, uh, the first serious opera by Rossini uh, and actually was not terribly well received at the time. There, there are many changes to Shakespeare's plot. In fact, Lord Byron uh, famously said that he felt that Rossini had crucified Shakespeare with this version of Othello. Of Othello. Um, but nonetheless, it entered the repertory and is still done to this day. Even more famous is Giuseppe Verdi's Otello from 1867, which is considered to be one of the greatest operas ever written. In fact, its success was so tremendous that um, Bernard Shaw, uh, come, when he was a music critic before he was a playwright, and I'm paraphrasing this, but he, he commented on how many operas seem to be written in the style of Shakespeare, but Otello was so grand and so great that it made it seem as if Shakespeare had written his play in the style of grand opera. Isn't that interesting? Was pre- that's a pretty good compliment, I'd say. No kidding. Um, and uh, there's also, uh, again, back to that Hogarth series, there's a, a, there's a novel called New Boy by, and I always wonder how you pronounce, Tracy Chevalier? Chevalier. I think so. She's, uh, she wrote uh, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Yeah. And she has a novel in the Hogarth series called New Boy, which is a new telling of the Othello story. Nice. Um, is that all you have? That's all I have. Well, I have a rock musical called Catch My Soul, produced by Jack Good. It, the U.S. production closed in 1968, but the character Viago had originally been played by Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> wow. Right? I, would, I, I, I almost want to say I would kill to see that. <laughs> well, there was a subsequent film version directed by Patrick McGuhan. You remember him riding around? Oh, from the Patrick McGowan from the Avengers. Yeah. Wow. Um, The next thing I have is a play called Goodnight Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet, which is a 1988 comedic play by Anne Marie MacDonald, in which the character of Constance Leadbelly, a young English literature professor from Queen's University, goes on this journey of self-discovery because she theorizes that Shakespeare's tragedies, Othello and Romeo and Juliet, were originally comedies. Uh, It's currently being performed in rotating rep along with Romeo and Juliet as part of the spring season uh, at the American Shakespeare Center in Staunton, Virginia. Well, that was actually in 2017, but it has subsequently been produced over 40 times in Canada and abroad. Wow. Another play about Desdemona is called Desdemona, a play about a handkerchief, which was written in 1993 by Paula Vogel. It opened at uh, Circle Rep on November 11th, 1993. Uh, it's a one-act play. Uh, she demonstrates in her comic deconstruction kind of aligns tongue-in-cheek humor while raising serious questions as to the role of women throughout the ages, saying, basically telling us that Desdemona was far from the quivering waif that we've all come to know. Mm-hmm. Paula Vogel, for those who don't know, is the, the, the brilliant playwright of such major plays as uh, How I Learned to Drive and Indecent. Indeed. And then there's a play written by a famous poet, Toni Morrison, called Desdemona, first produced in Vienna in May 2011, 
the title character of the play is Desdemona, and it arose from a collaboration between Toni Morrison, director Peter Sellers, and musician Rokia Traore, and revolves around Desdemona's relationship with the African nurse who raised her. Oh, Barbara. Isn't that interesting? The, one of the, the ghost character, Barbara, that we only hear about That's in right. Othello, but never meet. That's right. Uh, yeah. And then there is a dramatic play by Canadian playwright Dianette Sears uh, called Harlem Duet. Uh, Billy, a young graduate student in Harlem, deals with her husband, Othello, leaving her for a white woman named Mona. So, you know, it moves through time to show their relationship, being torn apart by racial tensions at a southern U.S. cotton plantation in 1860 and in Harlem in 1928 and the present. And then there's a 2012 play by Lolita Chakrabarty called Red Velvet, uh, dealing with the biography of the 19th century actor Ira Aldridge and his taking on of the role of Othello. There's a ballet called The Moor's Pavan. It's a 20-minute ballet based on uh, Othello by William Shakespeare, of course. The ballet was choreographed by Jose Limon in 1949 to music from Henry Purcell's Abdelazar, The Gordian Knot Untied. This ballet is, in fact, Jose Limon's most famous work, and his influence from his mentor, Doris Humphrey, is very evident in his choreography. And then the last thing I have is another ballet in three acts called Othello, based on uh, Othello, choreography by Lar Lubavitch and set to an orchestral score composed by Elliot Goldenthal um, and released commercially. You can actually buy the recording on the Varese Sarabon label. Originally produced in 1997, it was commissioned by ABT or the American Ballet Theater and the San Francisco Ballet in a co-production. That's a heap and helping of Othello. That's a lot of Othello. Uh, and then there's Pericles, which I have nothing right. on. Pericles, nothing. Richard II, also nothing. Nope, nothing. Richard III, you know, it actually surprises me. I mean, there's some stuff, but there really isn't as much as you would expect, c considering Truth. how popular Richard III has always been as, a, you know, a, it's one of the most performed Shakespeare plays ever. But all I could find is a, little, a fairly recent uh, opera by Giorgio Battistelli called Richard III that premiered in 2005. However, there are a couple of very famous paintings of Richard III, and not surprisingly, they're both of famous actors giving famous performances. The first is um, David Garrick, the famous 18th century actor and yes. theater manager. Uh, by the, it's a print by William Hogarth showing Richard III as he awakes from his nightmare of the ghosts appearing to him, holding his hand out very dramatically. Um, it's uh, very famous. Also, somewhat less known, but but pretty well known. There's a there's a portrait of Laurence Olivier as Richard III, who Olivier played it famously on stage, and there's also a movie of him uh, by Salvador Dali. Really. Oh, you don't know about this. Oh, you no, should look I it up. I would like to see that. Yeah, Salvador Dali was so taken by Olivier's performance and he felt that he, he actually felt that Olivier tapped into something uh, in his performance of Richard III that was very much akin to the kind of work that Dali was doing with his surrealist paintings. How so he wanted he wanted to paint Olivier's portrait as Richard III. And it's interesting because it's a double perspective. You get Richard's face, like L Olivier in costume, in profile as Richard III. And then behind the face of Richard III, you have Olivier's own face without 
being Richard, you know, just as himself. Wow. Looking directly at the viewer while he's juxtaposed against Richard's face in silhouette. Sort of like that famous Bergman shot. Yeah. Um, it's really, really fascinating. It's very hard to do justice uh, here on the pod without being able to show it to you. But I definitely, I mean, I recommend uh, anybody look up any of these, but the Dali uh, Richard III portrait of Olivier is absolutely fascinating. Interesting tidbit. My mom's older brother was a famous dentist on Fifth Avenue and Salvador Dali was one of his patients. Wow. Good yeah. Well, hmm, and, and Laurence Olivier gave my mom her first job in the theater when she was seven years old. So Ooh. I don't I don't I don't know which degree of Kevin Bacon that is, but <laughs> <laughs> uh well I have uh, uh Richard the Third quote history play written by Kali Sibber based on Richard the Third, but reworked for William Knight audiences. Now, Sibber was a prominent theater manager and he first attempted to stage his version in 1699, but it was a disaster. Um, and then obviously like, you know, the Renaissance of the 19th and 20th centuries deprecated any kind of modifications of Shakespeare's plot. So his adaptation couldn't stand a comparison against Shakespeare's. And so it has been rarely staged since. Although it's worth noting that all that Sibber's, you know, the people monkeyed around with Shakespeare and Sibber's time a lot. And some of his, some of his editions have been kept in some versions. If in the Olivier film of Richard III, and it's actually a really cool moment. Olivier clearly loved this moment enough that he didn't mind putting in something that wasn't written by Shakespeare. So Richard has that nightmare where the ghosts appear to him and he kind of loses his mind for a minute. And he has this, for the first and only time in the play, he questions himself in this famous soliloquy and he's lost all of his bravado and he just isn't Richard anymore. Um, And then as the battle begins in the film, Olivier has clearly like gotten his shit back together. And as he's riding into battle, he leans over his horse's neck and says into his ear, Richard's himself again. And that was written by Kali Sibber. And it's an, it, I have to say, it's an awesome moment. It isn't written by it Shakespeare. It is an awesome but, moment. In, but it in works. I, you know, I, 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 I can't blame Olivier for using that. Uh, and then the only other thing I have is uh, a comic called Requiem of the Rose King. Uh, it is loosely based on Richard III and Henry VI Part Three, and it follows Richard during the tumultuous Wars of the Roses period in English history. And it's mm. Japanese. Oh. It's a Th- Japanese there's... manga series written and illustrated by Aya Kano. I just thought of this, actually. It, it wasn't part of my research because it isn't strictly based on Richard III, but there is a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson of Treasure Island fame yeah. called The Black Arrow, which takes place during the Wars of the Roses. Oh, that's right. And I actually, I discovered it uh, only a few years ago and I got super excited because I thought, holy shit, Wars of the Roses plus Robert Louis Stevenson, this is going to be great. And then it was kind of disappointing, but the best thing in it is Richard III, as Richard Duke of Gloucester makes an appearance late in the novel and becomes a semi-major character, and he's fantastic. So that's sort of based on Richard III. Sort of. Sort um, of. Next would be Romeo and Juliet, and there's a ton on Romeo and Juliet, too. There, the, the, there, there is a ton, and I feel like this episode is like going to be four hours long. So I, I will just briefly... The, I could go on and on about the operas, but I'm just going to list five important ones. 
Uh, you got Gioletta e Romeo by Nicolai Vacai in 1825. You have E Capuletti e Montecchi by Vincenzo Bellini in 1830. You have Romeo e Giulietta by Guno, Charles Guno in 1867. You have A Village Romeo and Juliet by Frederick Delius in 1901. And then a little thing called West Side Story, which I'm sure Lisa Ann is going to talk oh, about. Oh, yes. That is clearly the most famous adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. There's a million bajillion paintings, famous paintings. The most famous one uh, is probably the Frank Dixie one, the two of them sort of kissing like on a little balcony, <laughs> um, which I recommend that you check out. But Lisa Ann, take it away, because I know we got to talk about West Side Story. Well, I I'm, I'll get to West Side Story. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is a play written by a Scottish playwright, Sharman MacDonald, called After Juliet. Uh, it was commissioned for a youth theater. The basic premise follows uh, what happens to the Capulets and the Montagues after Romeo and Juliet died. And the original production included MacDonald's daughter, Kira Knightley. Oh. Isn't that interesting? There's a, a, a rock musical called Bear, also known as Bear, a pop opera, later revised as Bear the Musical, um, focuses on a group of high school students and their struggles at their private Catholic boarding school, I'm sure. Uh, the musical debuted at the Hudson Theater in Los Angeles from October 14, 2000 to February 25, 2001, and it ran at the American Theater of Actors Off-Broadway in New York from April 19th to May 27, 2004. The Bell of Mayfair is a musical comedy composed by Leslie Stewart with a book by Basil Hood, Charles Brookfield, and Cosmo Hamilton, um, originally based on Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Original production opened at the Vaudeville Theater in London on the 11th of April, 1906, and ran for 431 performances. West Side Story is a musical with a book by Arthur Lawrence, music by Leonard Bernstein, and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. The story, hey guys, if you, you have, may have never heard of this, seen, if you have never seen West Side Story, <laughs> you stop this podcast right now and go watch it. Yeah, really, really. Um, the story set in the mid 1950s in the Upper West Side of New York City. Everybody a, knows. Right, yeah. which is a multiracial blue collar neighborhood. It explores the rivalry between the Jets and the Sharks. Jets are Caucasian. Sharks are Puerto Rican. Um, it, the original 1957 production, conceived, directed, and choreographed by Joan Robbins, produced by Robert E. Griffith and Harold Prince, marked Stephen Sondheim's Broadway debut. It ran Not a bad for, debut. Right? It ran for 732 performances before going on tour. It was nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, uh, but it only won the Tony Award for choreography and for scenic design. It, it's kind of incredible to me that, it, I mean, listen, it lost to The Music Man I for know. Best Musical, which, and The Music Man is a great musical, but give me a fucking break. It's not West Side Story. It had an even longer running London original production. And then there was a 1961 musical film adaptation, which we've talked about starring Natalie Wood, Richard Bamer, Rita Moreno, George Sakiris. Uh, yeah, you might have seen this movie. And won 10 out of 11 Academy Awards. And, and of course, there's there's a remake coming soon, directed by Steven Spielberg. That's right, which is very exciting. And and it was all, it was playing on Broadway in a major revival directed by Yvonne Van Hove when, uh, you know, coronavirus shut us all down. Well, I mean, it's been done a million times. Oh my God, of course! But this was a very this was you know that Van Hove production is the first 
major revival of West Side Story to not use the Jerome Robbins choreography. I know, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Then there's a one called Death Side Story. It is a musical based on West Side Story. Uh, it takes place in New York City during the mid-50s, but between two teenage street gangs of different cultural backgrounds, this time deaf and hearing. Isn't that hmm. interesting? Yeah. Giulietta e Romeo is an Italian language musical uh, with music by Riccardo Cocciante. Um, premiered in Verona on June 1st, 2007. Uh, the cast is comprised mostly of boys and girls between the ages of 15 and 18. And hmm. each character plays two roles. Do, do you know if they, I just out of curiosity, because I was in Verona a couple of years ago, do you know if they performed it in that Coliseum there, that huge, or where they performed it? I don't know where they performed it. Uh, they are planning to stage it in other European nations, though, in Italian. Is one thing they, nothing was doing when we were there, but like there's a huge like gladiatorial coliseum in Verona that I didn't know about, and they do like major performances there. Like every year they do Aida there of all things, and I'm wow. like, oh my god, can you imagine how great that would be to see something like that? Oh my god, in yeah. a huge Roman coliseum. Yeah. Then there's a 2019 musical called and Juliet, and this uh, featuring the music of Max Martin with a book right. by David Westreed, focuses on what if Juliet hadn't died at the end of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and it played at the man opened at the Manchester Opera House and then transferred to the West End on November 20th, 2019. Yeah, that's but, almost certainly going to come to Broadway. Right, because it closed on March 16th, 2020, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It has set a reopening date as March 12, 2021, but we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah, that's uh, a big hit in London right now. It's yeah. definitely going to come here. Yeah, but it's going to make its North American premiere in Toronto first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then there's a play called People's Romeo. It's a play by British playwright Mukul Ahmed, performed in both English and Bengali. It blends Shakespeare's words with Bengali poetry. And the Palagan theatrical tradition of song, music, dance, and storytelling is used. It opened at the Greenwich Theater in September 2010. And then there's a play by Peter Ustinov called Romanov and Juliet, which is a comic spoof of the Cold War set in a small mythical mid-European country of Concordia, whose leader is wooed by the United States and the Soviet Union, each wanting him as an ally. It premiered in Manchester, England on April 2nd, 1956. And the Broadway production was produced by David Merrick and directed by George S. Kaufman, opened on October 10th, 1957 at the Plymouth, and it ran for 389 performances. Peter Ustinov played the general and was nominated. It was nominated for Tony Awards for Best Play and Best Actor. And then Ustinov directed and starred in the film adaptation. There's a French musical called Romeo et Juliette de la Haine à l'Amour uh, with music and lyrics by Gerard Presgurvic. It premiered in Paris on January 19th, 2001. Uh, there's an American romantic comedy called Rose by Any Other Name, also based on Romeo and Juliet, set in the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century. It pokes fun at life, manners, and morals, uh, as well as the tensions within the modern LGBT and liberal communities, and stars lesbian actress Kathy DeBuono. Yeah. Then there's a ballet, uh, an hour-long ballet in the Slovenian company Malay Barmore, 
um, in 2005. And then there is Romeo and Juliet, the Russian ballet, uh, based on Prokofiev's music, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and the, go ahead. Well, famous versions of the Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet Ballet is Peter Martin's at the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center in 2007, Rudolf Nureyev at the London Coliseum in 1997, Sir Kenneth Macmillan at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden in 1965, John Cranko in 1984 to 5, uh, the Joffrey Ballet at New York City at the New York State Theater and in D.C. at the Kennedy Center. Those were the most famous versions of that. Uh, there's also a play, I'm, I'm just thinking, I remember seeing this years ago, there's a play called Shakespeare's R&J, and I remember, I, I, I'm just thinking of it right now, I think it's by someone, I'm looking it up, Joe Calarco, right, and it it's about, like, prep students that are, that get bored and they start reading Romeo and Juliet, and um, interesting things ensue. It's an, it, it was very successful off-Broadway, I think, in the late 90s. Wow. And then there's a bunch of comics. There's a comic called Boarding School Juliet, also known as Juliet of Boarding School. It's a, another manga series Japanese comic. Um, Prince of Cats is a 2012 graphic novel by Ronald Wimberly. Uh, it focuses on Tybalt and is set in <clears throat> 1980s New York. Uh, it was out of print for four years, but then it was reworked and re-released in 2016. Uh, and in 2018, it was announced that Legendary Entertainment had won the filming rights uh, with Lakeith Stanfield set to play the lead role of Tybalt, but it hasn't been done yet. And then Romeo and Juliet is another Japanese anime TV series. Uh, and although the anime borrows mostly from Shakespeare's story, the manga adaptation differs extensively from the original. And that's what I have for Romeo and Juliet. That's enough, I think, even for Romeo and Juliet. Um, All righty. I mean, we told you guys this was going to be like the longest episode ever. Tis a marathon, verily. Yeah, I don't think we had any idea, but it is. Anyway, so on to Taming of the Shrew. Indeed. So Catherine and Petruchio is a reworking of William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, obviously, by British playwright and actor... David Garrick. It was written in 1754 and actually was performed far more often than the original Shrew through the 18th and 19th centuries. A lot uh, of those rewrites got some play. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Shakespeare's though, play didn't return until 1844 in England and 1887 in the United States. Yeah, Garrick was responsible for a lot of that, even though he also is the one of the first uh, major actor and the, actors and theater managers to restore a lot of Shakespeare. That's true. Although he omitted the whole subplot about Bianca and Hortensio, mm -hmm. so it's not really a full-length play um, and was often performed with Garrick's shorter version of The Winter's Tale. So there we go. Mm, there we go. Um, Kiss Me, Kate is a famous musical with music and lyrics by Cole Porter. Um, it involves the production of a musical version of William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew uh, and the conflict on and off stage between the star and his leading lady. And it was inspired by the onstage, offstage battling of famous husband and wife actors Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fan Tan during their 1935 production of Taming of the Shrew. Mm -hmm. Yes, Lunt and Fontaine were, were uh, very famously at each other's throat over that, that production. Um, also, I don't know if you know, the Cole Porter originally did not want to be involved with the project of Kiss Me, Kate. Really? Because it was originally conceived as a musical version of The Taming of the Shrew. Oh, right. And, and he's he, like, no. And, 
And he felt like if he had to, if it was going to be like Shakespeare times, that he would have to change his style to reflect like the Elizabethan era. And he did not feel that he was, he, that was anything he wanted to be involved with. So when they made it a musical within a musical, then he then was, he was in. And I'll bet he was happy about it because he won a Tony for best score. It also won best musical, best author or book, best costumes, best producers. Um, and it ran on Broadway. It opened on December 30th, 1948 and ran for a total of 1,077 performances. Dang. And of course, it's been revived 18 bajillion times. 14 million bajillion times. Um, the Woman's Prize, also known as The Tamer Tamed, is a Jacobean comedy written by John Fletcher. It was first published in the first Beaumont and Fletcher folio of 1647, although it was written uh, several decades earlier because Fletcher died in 1625. It's a counterpart to Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, uh, in which the gender tables are turned and Petruchio the tamer in Shakespeare's is tamed by his second wife, Mariah, whom he marries after the death of Katerina, who is the shrew in the original Shakespeare. And, you know, you wonder what Fletcher, what was going on in Fletcher's mind, considering that he teamed up with Shakespeare to write uh, two or three of the last plays that are normally attributed to Shakespeare. Two Noble Kinsmen, Henry VIII, and the lost play Cardenio are all, we presume, co-written by Shakespeare and John Fletcher. That's right. Who knows what was in his head? Um, there is one ballet that I know of, of Taming of the Shrew, in two acts. It's choreographed by John Cranko. Uh, to keyboard works by Domenico Scarlatti. Oh, son of a gun. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Uh, and it debuted on March 16th, 1969 at the Wörthenbische Staatstheater in Stuttgart. <laughs> Again with the Germans. I know. What is it with the Germans? What do you have? Uh, not, you know, not much. Obviously, Kiss Me Kate is the is the most famous one. But there is a there is a little known opera called The Taming of the Shrew in three acts by composer Vittorio Giannini that was written in 1953. And of course, going back to that Hogarth novel series, once again, there is a novel called Vinegar Girl by Anne Tyler. Uh, who wrote The Accidental Tourist, among many other things. That is her read, modern retelling of the Taming of the Shrew story. Got to get into that Hogarth series. It's wonderful. Um, then we're on to The Tempest. The Tempest. And there is so much. There's, I mean, which is not surprising, really. It's a, the kind of play that lends itself to adaptation. That's true. There's Do you want to Go for well, it. yeah, I mean, I'll just there's a number of operas um, going back to all the way back to 1674, The Enchanted Isle uh, by Thomas Shadwell. Uh, there's one from uh, from 1922, The Tempest by Felice Letuada, The Knot Garden by Michael Tippett in 1970, uh, The Tempest by John C. Eaton in 1985. Uh, and most recently, The Tempest by Thomas Ades with a libretto by Meredith Oakes, which premiered to a vast critical acclaim at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden in London in uh, February of 2004. Hmm. Uh, and also David Garrick um, commissioned an opera in, uh, in, in the early 18th century or mid 18th century that was a, quite a flop. Um, and it was it was meant to be tongue in cheek. It actually featured a character known as Signor Shakespearelli. <laughs> <laughs> That's and of funny. course uh, we, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be uh this category without talking talking about uh the, the that hogarth 
novel series with yep. Hagseed by Margaret Atwood. I know you've read that book, haven't it's you? It's wonderful. Yeah, I got it. I really have to dive into the Hogarth yeah, series. And then, and, and, and I already mentioned Midsummer Tempest, which has, Car- right. has Caliban and Ariel in it by Paul Anderson. And there's a, beaut- well, a very famous painting of Miranda by John William Waterhouse by nine, nine, in 1916, which is another pre-Raphaelite painting, uh, very similar to the Malay Ophelia painting in, mm. in tone and style. Yeah. Well, let's see. I have a bunch of stuff. Let's start off with Una Tempete, which is a 1969 play by Aimé Césaire. It is an adaptation, obviously, from a post-colonial perspective set on an island in the Caribbean. There is a comedy adapted by John Dryden and William Davenon uh, called The Tempest or The Enchanted Island. Uh, the musical setting uh, previously attributed to Henry Purcell uh, and probably for the London revival of 1712 was probably by John Weldon, uh, premiered at the Duke's Theatre in London, um, November 7th, 1667, and was published in 1670. It is written partially in blank verse and partially in a sort of rhythmic prose. Hmm. Then we have The Mock Tempest, or The Enchanted Castle. It's a Restoration-era stage play parody by Thomas Dufet, premiered in 1674, Uh, In creating the farce, his target was not Shakespeare's famous play, but the adaptation by Dryden and Davenant that I was just talking about. Derivative of derivative. Mm -hmm. I'll Be the Devil is a play by Leo Butler that was commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company and written in response to The Tempest. It was staged for the first time at the Tricycle Theater in 2008. Uh, Butler said of the play, quote, more than anything, I want to put the audience in the eye of the storm. There are a lot of plays about war and colonialism that are wry and ironic and theoretical, and that's all very well, but it's always taking a step backwards from the reality. He said it in Ireland during the 18th century. Hmm. And then there is probably the most famous one, Return to the Forbidden Planet, which is a jukebox musical uh, by playwright Bob Carlton based on The Tempest. Uh, and the 1956 science fiction film Forbidden Planet, right? Which actually which is itself the loosely, in space, yeah. right? Right. Uh, it's billed as Shakespeare's forgotten rock and roll masterpiece. On September 27th, 1991, an off-Broadway production opened in New York at the Variety Arts Theater. Um, yeah, it's a high-energy show full of 1950s and 60s rock and roll classics performed on stage. There is uh, a West End cast album that was released in 1990. But my favorite has to be Beach Blanket Tempest, <laughs> which is <laughs> an Australian musical with book and lyrics by Dennis Watkins and music by Chris Harriet. Uh, the musical was commissioned by the North Queensland-based New Moon Theatre Company, and it was developed from a self-contained sequence called Beach Blanket Tempest that was in a previous Watkins Harriet musical called Dingo Girl. (laughs) It was billed as, quote, the surf rock musical to make Shakespeare turn in his grave. And it opened uh, in uh, at the Cairns Civic Theater on July 25th, 1984. That's super fun. That's a lot Um, of Tempest. That is. And then there's one comic. It's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, volume four. And The Tempest is the final volume in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Kevin O'Neill. So, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and then we get Timon of Athens. 
Ain't Did nothing you... on time in a bathroom. Uh, you know what? I thought so too, but I actually discovered, I don't know why anybody would bother with a play like Time in a Athens, but there actually is an opera, Time in a Athens by Stephen Oliver, which premiered in 1991. Get out! And it was never heard of ever again. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and then nothing... Troilus and Cressida, I have nothing. I have nothing on either Titus Andronicus or Troilus and Cressida. Well, you know, I would be very interested oh, to see. that's not true. I lie. William Walton, of all people, Sir William Walton, who wrote all of that gorgeous music for uh, Laurence Olivier's Shakespeare yeah. movies, he actually did write an opera of Troilus and Cressida. But here's the kicker. It would debuted in 1954. It's kind of a cheat because it, it's really based on the Chaucer epic poem, Troilus and Crusade, which, ah, okay. which is the basic source material for Shakespeare's play. Right. So it's, so it's the same basic story and it's sort of based on Shakespeare, but he took it from the source that Shakespeare also took. So right, right. Take, take that for as you will. And next we have Twelfth Night. There's a bunch of stuff on Twelfth Night. I will tell you that everybody and their mother seems to think that making a musical out of Twelfth Night is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's true. That's true. Uh, we can start with All Shook Up. That's a 2004 American jukebox musical with music from the Elvis Presley songbook and with a book by Joe DiPietro. It premiered on Broadway in 2005. The characters and the twists in the musical were inspired by... Much Ado About Nothing, Twelfth Night, As You Like It, and Midsummer Night's Dream. It premiered on Broadway at the Palace Theater on March 24th, 2005, and closed on September 25th, 2005, after 213 performances and 33 previews. Illyria is a musical with book music and lyrics by Peter Mills, written in 2002. Uh, it's a traditional kind of adaptation of Twelfth Night, but features a more contemporary score. Uh, it premiered from April 12th through the 28th um, in 2001 at the Hudson Guild Theater in New York City. It began as a Prospect Theater Company's musical production of Twelfth Night in Central Park in 2001. Your Own Thing is a rock-styled musical comedy uh, performed off-Broadway in early 1968, music and lyrics by Hal Hester and Danny Apollinar, with the book adaptation by Donald Driver, who all directed the, also directed the original. Uh, the original production opened on January 13th, 1968, at the off-Broadway Orpheum Theater, and closed on April 5th, 1970, after 933 performances. Yeah, you know, my, my parents had that cast album when I was a kid. They had every cast album under the sun. And I, I used to listen to that quite a bit. It's actually a very, very cute show. Well, um, during its run, replacement cast members included Sandy Duncan, Raul Julia, and Bonnie Franklin. Wow. Yeah. It won the eight, 1968 Outer Circle Critics Award for Best Production, the New York Drama Critics Circle for Best Musical, Theater World Award, and a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding New Playwright. Yeah, you know what? I, I actually, I think it's due for a revival. There's an idea. It's, it's, it's never done, and it's actually quite good. I've never heard it. I'd love to hear it. Oh, yeah. I, have, I mean, I have, the, I have the vinyl album somewhere. Wow. And then there's Music Is, uh, which is a musical with a book by George Abbott, music by Richard Adler, and lyrics by Will Holt. Um, it's the second adaptation following the Your Own Thing. It had its premiere at the Seattle Rep in 1976, and the Broadway production opened on December 20th, 1976, following 14 previews and closed on December 26th, 
1976 after eight performances did not mm. do well no and then the final one is play on which is a another musical adaptation of 12th night featuring the music of duke ellington with a book by cheryl l west in this one resets the story in 1940s harlem the original production premiered at the Old Globe in San Diego in September 1996. And after 19 previews, it opened on Broadway on March 20th, 1997 at the Brooke Atkinson's Theater, where it ran for 68 performances. The cast included Tanya Pinkins, Andre Shields, and Carl Anderson. Now, you would think, considering how many musicals have been made of Twelfth Night and, this, and how popular a play it is, that there would be a ton of operas or at least operettas written about Twelfth Night? You would think, but I could find, not not only could I only find one, but it's unfinished. Get out! There's an unfinished romantic opera called Viola. It was written in 1884 by, and you're going to have to forgive me if I mispronounce these names. Bedrich Smetana wrote the music and Eliska Krasnohorska wrote the libretto. Nice job. Listen, listeners, you have to forgive us if we're, there's like a million names that we're speaking today. So forgive <laughs> us if we mess any of them up. And that's all I got on Twelfth Night. Wow. I know. I was shocked. Yeah, I am too. I thought there, I mean, it's perfect for a ballet, don't you think? You would think. Um, and then Two Gentlemen of Verona is next. I only have the pretty famous rock musical of Two Gentlemen of Verona with a book by John Guar, the famous playwright, and Mel Shapiro, um, and lyrics by Guar, and music by Galt McDermott. The of hair fame. That's right. The original Broadway production in 1971 won the Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical. A London production followed in 1973, and the Public Theater in New York, not far from your house, revived the piece in 2005. Uh, interestingly about two gentlemen two two factoids about two gentlemen of verona i believe it is the only broadway musical other than hair that galt mcdermott wrote the the score for and also it has it has the distinction of one of winning uh best musical you know we were talking before about west side story losing best musical the tony award to uh music man yeah well, uh, and how unfair that is. This may strike you as even more unfair. When Two Gentlemen of Verona won Best Musical, it beat Follies. I know, which I think is insane. I'm, I'm not the hugest fan of Follies, but come on, come on. Well, look at the kind of people that were in it. The original had like Raul Julia, Clifton yeah, Raul Davis, Julia. Mm -hmm. Stockard Channing, and Jeff Goldblum in his first Broadway performance. He was in the chorus. And then the 2005 revival had Norm Lewis, Rosario Dawson, Renee Elise Goldsberry of Hamilton fame, if anybody uh, knows mm -hmm. that, small piece, and John Cariani. That's what I so got. So there you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't have one thing on two, on two Gentlemen of Verona. I think that's really, that's, that's the big biggie. Nor do I have anything on Two Noble Kinsmen. Nope, me neither. The Winter's Winter? Tale. Winter's Tale. There actually is a fairly recent vintage. There's an opera in three acts by Ryan Wigglesworth that played in London in 2017. <laughs> I'm sorry, that makes me laugh. Wigglesworth. Yeah. Ryan Wigglesworth. What is a Wigglesworth? Um, anyway, it, <laughs> it was actually quite popular and well received. But who, you know, it's very recent. So we'll see if it stands the test of time. Also, finally, there's one last book 
in the Hogarth series, The Gap of Time by Jeanette Winterson. That's right. Well, I have a ballet. The Winter's Tale is a ballet in three acts choreographed by the famous Christopher Wheeldon to a commissioned score by Jody Talbot. It was a co-production of the Royal Ballet and the National Ballet of Canada. And it was first presented at the Royal Opera House on April 10th, 2014. And then the North American premiere occurred the following year. Um, and then I have, is that all you have? Because I have this one weird comic that I have saved for last because go for it it's kind of it's it's kind of in its own category so there is a 12 issue comic book series called kill shakespeare produced by anthony del cole and connor mccreary who also served as co-writers with andy bellinger as artist ian herring as colorist and kagan mcleod as the cover artist the first issue was published on april 14th 2010 Okay, I have to tell you what's going on, but it's going to take a second, okay? So, Prince Hamlet is being banished with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from his country of Denmark for the murder of Polonius. But before he leaves, he takes one last look around his city and is confronted by a strange mist that tells him he should kill his uncle. So, Hamlet then denies that he's a killer and gets onto the ship headed for England. That night, he has another encounter with this strange mist, and then the ship is attacked by pirates. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are killed, but Hamlet manages to escape on a piece of the ship with a deceased sailor already on this piece of ship. Then he wakes up in a strange bedroom and meets Richard III. Richard tours Hamlet through his city, showing him that he's building libraries and schools for them. He then asks Hamlet if he will help steal Shakespeare's quill because he's the only one who can find Shakespeare. And in exchange, Richard will resurrect Hamlet's father. Richard then demonstrates this by bringing the sailor that Hamlet was found with on the dead. He was dead on the piece of ship. He brings him back to life. You with me so far? Did you say piece of ship? (laughs) Yes. I'm sorry. I'm just just clarifying. (laughs) So then Hamlet agrees to join Richard's quest to find Shakespeare, but Hamlet doesn't know how to find Shakespeare. So then Iago asks him if he can just fucking relax. And this causes a path to appear in the woods, et cetera, et cetera. You got Richard, you got Falstaff, you got Puck. Then they create an alliance with Macbeth and Lady Mac. And then they meet up with Juliet Capulet and Othello And then they all meet up with a troop of actors led by Festy, blah, 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 blah. Finally ends with Hamlet throwing aside a knife and which then begins to move by itself and tries to kill Shakespeare. Uh, It would take like another five hours for me to explain the rest of this. All all I can say is I'm relieved to know that there's somebody crazier and more obsessed with Shakespeare than us. I guess we have to read it to actually make that distinction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, thank you for sticking with us through this insanity. Yeah, let's Um, get out while the getting is good before our viewers, our listeners come and get us. Yeah, but you know, the point is Shakespeare is not going anywhere, my friends. He's going to be around forever as long as there are people and as long as there is writing and reading and playmaking and theater going. He's not going anywhere. That is for sure. So thanks, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Please, if you, we know it's a really hard time, but if you have any money that you want to spare, $5, $10, please go to our patreon.com page and 
you know, throw us some cash. And please be sure to check out our website at www.thebardcastudick.com. Uh, also, don't forget to visit our Actors Fund link on our website. This is a tough time for artists all over the world. Uh, again, if you have any cash to spare, it's a very worthy cause. And our next episode will be Punny Shakespeare, um, when we'll talk about all of the stuff that is supposed to be funny, but modern day people really don't get because it's pretty All the double entendres and puns and all of that shit in Shakespeare. We'll get into it. That's right. But we'll we'll save the romantic stuff for the following episode, which is erotic Shakespeare. Yeah, just in time for Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. And remember... It's it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you you dick! dick. (laughs) (laughs) Never going to make that happen. (laughs) It's almost a signature at this point. Getting it wrong. Getting it wrong. Yeah. The preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.